Welcome to the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. Today I've got my friend Russ Jacoby of Mossback, Arizona on the line. Russ, how you doing? Excellent, Jay. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm look, we've got a bunch of stuff to cover today. I haven't talked to you in a while. Um, last time we talked, you had told me that you and a good friend of ours, Kelly Gibson, had drawn a Unit 10 archery elk tag and wanted to get your thoughts on how that hunt was, how, how you guys did, and what kind of year it was there in Unit 10. Well, it was a banner year. We saw probably more elk on an elk hunt than we've ever seen before, which is saying something. I think we're a little spoiled here in Arizona with our elk hunting. Russ, um, they, they dropped the tags from, I believe, 150. They were as high as 200 at, at one time down to 100 bull tags uh, and no cow tags. How was the uh, people interaction and, and hunting pressure uh, as you guys saw it there this year? I think that was a huge positive difference in the hunt this year. We, we hunted maybe some areas that most hunters would shy away from, um, we enjoy the quality of the experience as much as anything. And most people won't probably believe this, Jay, but we literally went over a week before we saw our first other hunter. Okay. What were the conditions like as far as you've hunted in Unit 10 quite a bit um, from a moisture standpoint? Uh, how was it better, the same, or worse than years you'd seen in the past? It's definitely better than normal is how I would describe it. So I, I would consider it to have been a particularly wet year, and we certainly saw that in the quality of the bulls that we saw. There were more what I would call that middle-aged class bulls than I thought possible. Um, you know, we're probably a little spoiled in that we weren't interested in pursuing elk in the mid-300s, but... I won't even begin to tell you how many mid-300 bulls we saw because nobody would believe us. We, we saw so many 330, 340, 350-type bulls, and it, it was really awesome to see that. I think in a few years, you're going to have an amazing crop of older age class. I do think that the effect of the hunting pressure that we've seen over the last decade has impacted the older age class bulls. Uh, neither Kelly nor I chose to harvest a bull on this hunt, but we have no regrets. We had a most amazing hunt, and we saw so many elk. Um, we just didn't have opportunities for the eight older age-class bulls that we were really interested in. Unit 10 historically is known for, uh, you know, bulls with a good top end, a good back end, you know, good fourth, good fifth, good main beams. Uh, typically a little bit skinnier maybe than, say, Unit 9, not as much mass, but, but a really good-looking good back end. Uh, was this year any different? I, I believe so. Um, you know, we saw so many solid bulls that are uh, just trophy-quality animals. The health of their body condition, the health of the cows that we saw, the offspring was all well above average. And... I think the average elk put on a lot more horn this year than they would in an average year, and that certainly was reflective in, in their horn growth. It, it was unbelievable. There were a few older age-class bulls, and, uh, you know, one of the things about Unit 10, and it's no secret, people are hunting some areas that border um, Indian reservations and other areas where you can't hunt, and um, we were heartbroken but excited for the hunters that harvested them um, on the res, they harvested two bulls that we had seen and some of our scouting that were off the charts, crazy huge. Um, one of the bulls got harvested when we were right on our side of the fence, I mean, right there when he got harvested. And that's always heartbreaking, breaking, but you got to, you know, be excited for the hunters that were successful on the other side of the fence. For sure. What kind of, uh, I think we had a September 15th start date. Um, prior to the hunt, uh, were the bulls just ripping it up a week beforehand, or did it not really get going until about the hunt started? I was curious what the 
progress of the rut was this year? So that part was a little different than what we expected. A month before the hunt, we were here in bulls bugling, and it certainly ramped up some. But even during the hunt, um, we have this one area we call the bull pasture, and I've never seen anything like it, Jay. We would go into this one area, and we were hunting this area because uh, of a bull we had scouted prior to the season that Kelly really wanted badly. Really pretty bull. Um, a relatively young bull, but really pretty. and just kind of had everything Kelly was looking for. And we had him up until a few days before the hunt. He moved, and we never found him again. And trust me, it's not for lack of looking. Um, I literally don't think people would believe how many miles and hours and effort we put into trying to turn that bull up again. And we think he moved into Unit 9 and joined some cows over there. We never, never did find him again. But... A month before the hunt, elk were already bugling. But as the hunt progressed, um, there were some areas on the same day, you go to one side of the road and the elk would be going pretty nuts. You go to the other side of the road, they wouldn't talk at all. So it was kind of sporadic and kind of patchy. And the same thing was true, I think, with some of the feed. Um, We knew it was a wet year, but I was really surprised at how many areas were really green and how many areas were pretty desolate. There was definitely, you know, hot and cold. There wasn't a lot of warm. It was one way or the other. And that bull pasture we're talking about, we probably saw 30 to 50 different elk in there over the course of the two-week hunt that were all bulls. We never one time found a cow in this area. The bulls would come through. They'd be there for 24 hours. You'd never see them again. And we never saw the same bull twice, two days in a row. But every day we went in there, we'd find between one and ten bulls every single time we went there. It was crazy. I'd never seen anything like it. So some expert in elk biology needs to figure out why you have a territory where there's bulls with no cows during the rut. I do not understand that at all. That is kind of crazy. I think you you mentioned one thing there that I think people could take home and Every year, especially in units like Arizona, and I would even say probably, you know, Arizona, New Mexico, Nevada, some of those uh, more arid, maybe even southern Utah, some of those areas where you've got arid terrain, um, you know, it's so dependent on where those monsoon rains, those summer rains hit, in that you could have, you know, a big group of elk in one part of the unit and the next year the rain not hit right there and literally there not be an elk. Um, and I think that's one thing that when people draw these tags, especially out-of-staters, uh, you know, they get information and what have you and they go the, the next year and it's nothing like that. But if they just moved over five miles or even a mile or sometimes a half mile, um, those same elk, that their buddies were telling them about had just slid over maybe into another pasture where there weren't cattle or, or maybe just where it was greener and, and you know, there was a, a better green up. Um, but would you agree from an, from an arid elk hunting standpoint, like you have to find those green areas and a lot of times you'll find a big pile of elk? Absolutely. We definitely saw that. We, we found areas where it was good green up and the bulls, don't necessarily have to be in those areas. They can get feed in the smaller herds um, in other areas. But when they're looking for girlfriends, they're going to go where the cows are. And we had seen herds of 50 or 100, even 200 cows before season, no bulls in there. But as the rut came on and as the hunt started, you know, the, the boys found the girls. They had no problem finding them. And then those green-up areas where you had big elk herds and no hunting pressure, this is important. When you don't have 30 guys out there blowing on their elk call, the elk would talk all day, and they talk for two weeks, and they never shut up. Um, we go into other areas where it might be more popular or more traditionally known area. We'd see bulls with cows and never a bugle, not one bugle. Hunting elk, a really tremendous bull in a thick stuff when they're not talking with a bow and arrow um, can certainly be challenging. It's fun but you're not going to be as successful than if they're talking. So all of us can help each other by being a little less vocal with our elk calls, I think. (laughs) Leave the horn at home. 
Oh, well, it sounds like you guys had a great, uh, great hunt. Um, I, I know you also uh, have been harvesting buffalo, and I know there's a lot going on that we had talked about in a previous podcast we kind of alluded to. But what is going on, uh, and let me preface this by saying, Russ, you are the, uh, the buffalo authority up on the Kaibab Plateau. Uh, anybody that draws a buffalo tag, make sure to get a hold of Russ. Uh, Russ's track record is unprecedented up there, Russ and his group. Um, what is going on with the National Park Service? Is there a hunt in the National Park? Uh, can you bring us up to speed on that? Sure. So... The number of buffalo on the Kaibab Plateau has grown to the point where uh, the management agencies want to reduce those numbers, and, and that's going to happen. So hunters may not like that, but I can assure you it's going to happen. Now, how do we do that? Well, for a number of years, we've been trying to reduce some of sport hunting. Unfortunately, when the buffalo go into the Grand Canyon Park, we can't legally hunt them there. And it makes it very difficult to try to reduce the numbers down to the populations that they're, that they're trying to control them at. So they're going to have to do something different. So the Park Service went through an extensive process where they've done um, environmental impact assessments, basically, looking at all the different factors of, of what's going on up there. And you got to give them some credit here that they're in a difficult spot. So no matter what they do, some specialty group somewhere is going to be disappointed or unhappy with the approach that they're going to take. So they're going to do the best they can to meet the needs of, of as many constituents as they can. Um, but they're not going to make everyone happy. To do that, they're looking at many different management tools in their toolbox. So one of the things that they will likely do is use capture pens to capture and remove animals. Those animals will be donated either to food banks, Indian tribes, uh, other government agencies that can accept the bison to different areas, and potentially even private citizens that would want bison for their own operations. And, and I do believe that that will probably happen. Their stated goal is to reduce the bison um, over a three- to five-year period. In addition to that, they have other management tools in their toolbox. One of them is doing exclusion, semi-permeable exclusion fences within the park. And what that means is they would be putting up fences that would allow most wildlife to access the water, but would selectively prevent bison from accessing water. The thinking would be, if you can't get water in the park, the buffalo would leave the park where sport hunters could do a better job of harvesting and removing them. So I believe that that will make an impact, and that has already begun. Um, not a ton of waters are fenced, but they're certainly beginning to fence the waters. And over the course of the next few years, hopefully that will have a big impact. In addition to that, there's this concept of a, quote, harvest inside of the park. And I'm not going to use the hunt word because hunting is not allowed in the park. So don't think we're going to be applying for tags in the park with our current laws, with our current rule structure. Now, there may be an opportunity for those rules to change, but the way they're written today, that's not going to happen. So the Park Service, if they use that tool, has to make whatever activity happens as different from sport hunting as possible to legally accomplish that. So what they've been talking about doing is what we might call a cull rather than a hunt. There would be volunteers that would apply for some type of a lottery system that would likely be similar to how they do lottery for river trips or something like that. Um, people would be selected and attend an extensive training class to learn about their activities and what they need to do and how to be safe and not um, damage plant and other things that are more sensitive or, or treated differently in a park than they might be outside of a park. They would go on these activities where they would be asked to shoot juvenile animals and after the animal is shot, they would not, har they would not collect the animal. A different crew would come through and collect the carcasses and take the meat. Um, that meat would go kind of into a communal area where it would be divvied up between potentially volunteers, Indian tribes, food banks, and other places. Um, you're not going to get to keep your trophy or your hide or anything like that. There, I guess, potentially, it, you know, this is still, I think, being determined that those might be uh, 
available for public auction or something like that, if they're even available at all. But the idea of sport hunting trophy bison with inside the park is not what this activity would be about. Gotcha. But the meat is not going to go to waste, is it? So we're told it's not, and I believe that that's true, but the volunteers may not necessarily get the meat from the animal that they were to, to take. And so it's much, much different than what sport hunters think of when you think of the North America conservation model. It's something very different. I, I can't really give you an analogy of something similar because I'm unaware of any that currently happen anywhere in Arizona. So from the hunting community's perspective, will this make the hunting on the Kaibab Plateau for buffalo better, worse, or indifferent? Well, I think that remains to be seen. Um, people are like, well, this is going to make a big impact to what you're doing, Russ. Well, yeah, it might, but it might not. There's a large number of bison on the plateau, and no one knows exactly how many there are, but there's certainly more than the, than the management agencies want. But the rate at which they're reproducing, you're going to have to remove a lot of buffalo um, in the next three to five years to get the numbers down to the levels that they might want them at. Are they going to be able to accomplish that? Well, let's see. Um, in the process of accomplishing that, those activities certainly are going to impact the hunts that happen off of the park. How big of an impact is that going to be? I think that depends on the rate at which they remove bison and how effective things like exclusion fences at water sources and some of these other activities are. I do think that at some point in the future there will be much fewer tags. But for like this year, when hunters were asking me, hey, what should I do? You know, this is a great time to have a buffalo tag, and you can't control what happens on the park. And I do think we still continue to be successful even as these activities have begun that it's a great time to have a tag. I don't know that we'll be saying that 10 years from now. Um, I certainly think there will be great hunts in the future, but I doubt there will be the number of tags that we see today. How has your hunting been over, say, the last four, five, six months? So the hunt that just ended recently, we, I think, took six buffalo in like four days. So it was really great. And people look at that and go, you know, what causes that? Or that's a great time of year to apply. And that's not necessarily true. When we have good weather, bison move around a lot. And that really provides opportunities off of the park. When also, you say good, what do you mean good? Hot and dry. When it's hot and dry, they move around a lot. They want salt a lot. Um, they're going to come to water more. Um, they're going to come off the park more. They're moving a lot more. So hot and dry weather is really good for buffalo hunting. And when we have a good group of hunters, and when I say a good group of hunters, when we have a group of hunters that are willing to work together to everyone's benefit, and we've talked about this on every podcast we've done, when hunters work together, everyone can be successful. And we certainly saw that on this last hunt. Um, when you have hunts where people kind of want to go do their own thing, they're certainly allowed to do that, but those behaviors tend to have a detrimental impact on a bigger group of hunters. So the hunters that work together tend to be successful as a group. The hunters that tend to go off and do their own thing, sometimes they're successful, but the overall success for the group drops substantially. Understood. Um, um, go ahead. When you, when you asked how we're doing the last several months or last several weeks or whatever the time frame is, in my experience, when we have good groups of hunters that work well together, the hunt success goes up. Now, the success varies, and it fluctuates a lot based on a lot of other factors. The moon phase, the rain that we get, um, other activities that happen on, on the forest. So I don't think people appreciate it. As hunters, we tend to get very focused on what we're doing, and we don't recognize what other forest users are doing. But a good example is on the Kaibab, this year there was a horse race, this big horse event. You know, you bring hundreds of horses into an area, it's going to have an impact on what else those other activities are going on at that same time. And we can't control that, but that certainly has an impact on what, what the buffalo hunters are doing. But overall, I think this has been a really good year. Um, the hunters that are persistent 
and use effective hunting techniques tend to be very successful. Um, but this isn't an easy hunt. It takes being persistent and sticking with it. And when you do, you're usually rewarded. Um, and I have one particular example of that. Back in July, which is not known as being a good time of, to hunt, and that's mainly because of the monsoons, when it's dripping water falling out of the sky constantly, uh, the buffalo movement drops substantially, and it's very difficult. The hunts get, I don't want to say impossible, but they get very frustrating and very challenging. We killed probably the biggest buffalo taken in a long time uh, in July. And that one particular hunter just had a tenacity to stick with it. Showed up every day, didn't complain, had a positive attitude, and just kept doing those activities that are proven to be successful. And he was rewarded with just a giant bull. And what a Cinderella story. I love to see hunters that are out there enjoying the outdoors, working hard, and get rewarded for it. And that still happens on the buffalo hunt. I'd love to tell you it happens every time, but it happens more often to not than for those hunters that are persistent and really stick with it. That's awesome. So are there hunts going on right now, or do they not pick up till the spring? Um, we do have hunts right now. There's kind of a structure where there'll be a two-week hunt. It closes for a week or so, and then it'll open again. And that pattern is going to continue until about the middle of November, and it switches to the last hunt of the year, which is a longer season. And that hunt will go, you know, a month and a half type time frame. And then the hunts for the year will end, and then next year's hunts will start. This next spring, the hunt structure changed quite a bit. In the past, there had been a hunt that was five or six months long, and that hunt has been chopped up now. There's kind of a three-month break in the January, February, March time frame, and then there's... Um, a shortened hunt, instead of being five or six months, you know, it's a month and a half type hunt. And then there's two hunts in June. In recent past, there have been two two-week hunts in June, and now there's going to be two hunts in June that are more like those 10-day deer hunts that we have in Arizona. So the season's being shortened up a little bit with the thinking of giving some dead time between the seasons. How do you think that will impact your quality of hunt or success? Well, more days is always better. The more days you have to work with really helps. Um, the impact of the dead time kind of remains to be seen. It's something new that they're trying. In my experience, the weather probably has a bigger impact on, on the buffalo movement than anything. And then buffalo hunter behavior has a bigger impact on buffalo probably next. But certainly having some, uh, some downtime allows the, the bison to settle into an undisturbed pattern and can let hunters capitalize on that. And it can be a really good thing. Now, is more days or is rest periods more beneficial? I don't think we have enough data to make a conclusion on that. But it doesn't really matter. At the end of the day, that's how long the season is. And you just got to make the best of that current situation. Sometimes when you get those shorter seasons, you get more of a focused effort, whereas you have a five- or six-month season, you might not put as much pressure on the resource. I would maybe argue that shortening the season will actually put a more intense effort on the hunter's part. Um, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. Absolutely. And... You know, I don't think you can compare one year to the next and get an answer for that. I think you need a longer block of time to really understand that. And that's probably not going to happen here because the numbers are going to change. So the factors that confound the results will mean that you're not going to get a clean data set. You know, you're going to have apples and oranges when you try to compare those two hunt structures. For sure. Russ, what do you know about this um, push by the Humane Society to get an initiative to try and stop uh, cat hunting, lion and, and bobcat, mountain lion and bobcat hunting in the state of Arizona? Well, I was disappointed, I guess, when I saw that. And not because I'm a hunter, but, you know, I'm, I'm a Arizona resident that cares about the wildlife in Arizona. And there's obviously an agenda here that I don't think 
that everyone's aware of. You know, the Humane Society's stated goal, whether they state it publicly or not, is to eliminate all hunting. And that's unfortunate because hunters are conservationists. We wouldn't have many of the wildlife populations that we have if it weren't for hunters. When you eliminate a portion of hunting, their stated goal over time is to just keep chipping away until they eventually eliminate all hunting. Now, people can argue all they want about if that's going to happen. That's their stated goal. That's what they want to happen. So this isn't necessarily being done because it's been thought out and scientifically is the right thing to do for wildlife. It's pulling at people's heartstrings. And that's the improper way to do wildlife management. When you, ha when you have a misbalanced predator-prey relationship, there's going to be a lot of negative consequences for other wildlife in Arizona if it were to pass, but it's also going to cause other problems. California is a good example. You know, this type of initiative has passed in California in the past, and the incident of interactions between large predators and humans has just become a problem for them. It's like an epidemic. And those same type of things are going to happen in Arizona if this were to pass. So I'm hopeful that through education, the voters in Arizona can understand that it's a bad thing for Arizona and that we don't want that here. Um, as our population becomes less and less agrarian, you know, there's more and more people in the city that just hear a snippet on the news or on Facebook. They don't really understand the overall dynamics of the issues. And unfortunately, it can happen where, where some of those negative, bad uh, ideas get passed, and then we all suffer the consequences of it. So in other words, you'd like to see wildlife management decisions left in the hands of the, you know, the Game and Fish Department and let them, uh, even though we can disagree with the Game and Fish from time to time on things they do, what you're saying is you think they still do a pretty darn good job and that they use a scientific approach rather than a knee-jerk reaction and, and heartstring reaction type of approach that, that this initiative puts forth. Absolutely. You know, the, the critters they are trying to outlaw hunting in Arizona, a ton of them already it's illegal to hunt them in Arizona. So why are you trying to outlaw that? It's already outlawed. Um, the two main critters that we would be talking about would be bobcats and mountain lions, neither of which are their numbers in any type of, of decline or, or negative quantities or anything like that. The populations are extremely healthy. It's a renewable resource. It generates funding and revenue, um, which help and benefit not only those wildlife animals, but many other wildlife species. Additionally, it has the benefit of creating an environment where those predators in their interactions with humans, the negative interactions are relatively small. If we come in and ban mountain lion hunting in Arizona, you can guarantee that in the future there's going to be very negative interactions between large predators and humans. And when that happens, it starts to cost the state money in coping with those. Right now they have a revenue stream. If this were to pass, they're going to have a deficit in trying to cope with those challenges uh, of the new law. Yeah, and not to mention when they're walk some ladies walking their dog down the street and a lion jumps out and, you know, swallows the poodle, it's, uh, that's going to cause a scene. It's already happening in California. It happens, and it's not just poodles. It's when they attack the lady that's walking the dog. And, <laughs> you know, our deer herd in Arizona is doing great in some places, but in other places it struggles. And the same thing with our bighorn sheep. Um, you eliminate sport hunting and mountain lions, it's not going to just impact mountain lions. It's going to have a huge impact of all the prey species as well because the state will not be able to fund controlling the uh, wildlife numbers of the large predators efficiently the way they do today. They don't have the resources to do that, and the predator-prey relationship and ratios will get out of whack, and you're removing a tool that the wildlife agencies use today to keep that balanced and keep all wildlife healthy. So it's a really bad idea for Arizona. For sure. 
So with deer season around the corner, late elk season, uh, all the you know sheep season, everything coming up, what do you have um, on your schedule between the buffalo and everything else? Uh, anything real exciting for you? I do. Um, so we have um, several elk hunts that are still going on in the peaks. In fact, we've got one that starts this Friday that we'll be guiding. And those aren't necessarily thought of as the premier trophy hunt in Arizona. But for the hunters that have that tag, that's an important hunt for them. And we really look forward to those seasons. Um, harvesting a nice bull elk on a peak hunt in 7 East is just as exciting as going and doing what we did in Unit 10 on the archery hunt this year. And we really look forward to those hunts. Um, there are still some trophy hunts coming up. So, of course, we'll be on the strip on the rifle deer hunt. Um, my local Ford dealer, and I won't share his name on the radio, but um, he has that strip deer tag and will be up there on his hunt. We were actually up there scouting recently, and this is his first ever strip deer hunt. And he is like a little kid Christmas morning. I mean, he's an adult, but he literally cannot focus at home or at work right now for thinking about his deer hunt. Yeah, I don't blame them. Uh, sounds like it's going to be a pretty good year up there from everything I've heard as far as antler growth and just the way things are shaping up. Um, it's going to be exciting to see. Arizona's already kicked out some giant bucks, um, so it's, it's pretty darn neat. Uh, you mentioned a Ford dealer. I know um, you just recently got a Ford Raptor, and um, I drive a 2014 Ford Raptor. I'm curious, I believe yours is a 17. Um, what do you think after getting to use it? Actually, I got an 18, but they're very similar. There's very few changes between 17 and 18. And, Jay, there are literally not words to describe it. Um, I told you. <laughs> holy crap. I mean, I've wanted yeah. a Raptor for a long time. But, you know, we work hard to purchase the tools that we, that we use in our hunting situations. And we're very frugal on how we invest those resources. So my last truck was a, uh, was a Super Duty, and I put 300,000 miles on it. And we ran, I won't even tell you how many hundreds of hunts out of that truck. And by the time we were done with it, it looked like it had been on that many hunts. Um, it was a great truck and treated me really well. We actually, in the last calendar year, purchased two Super Duties and a Raptor. And people are like, Russ, you're insane. And I'm like, we're doing more than one hunt a year, dude. So we, we need those trucks. Um, and I've got four drivers on these hunts. Um, just in my family, plus the trucks that we use for, for my guides and helpers and stuff. When we're doing buffalo hunts, it's not uncommon for us to be running three trucks full time to make the hunts happen. But the new Raptor is a game changer. You know, the diesel trucks are great for towing. Um, I use them off-road in situations that people think that they sh probably shouldn't be in. But in my experience, they hold up better than anything else I've ever tried. The Raptor kind of is that next level. The suspension on a nasty road is a completely different beast than a Super Duty. Um, when I need to tow a fifth wheel or I need to tow a horse trailer, or I need to move, you know, multiple dead buffalo, I grab the Super Duty. When I need to cover, you know, 500 miles on the strip in a weekend, I grab the Raptor. And we had it out on its main voyage on the strip just in the last two weeks. And uh, I think I set a couple new records for camera <laughs> running on some of the routes. It was, it was fun. It's, it's fun. It's comfortable. The cabs don't leak dust. The truck gets crazy awesome gas mileage. We got almost 20 miles to the gallon driving from Flagstaff to St. George. And, um, you know, it's still a new toy, so I wouldn't tell you that I was under the speed limit the whole way. Um, <laughs> when we got, got some power. Out, so isn't it like 800 pounds lighter than the older model, the new aluminum uh, frame? Yeah, so the steel frame is stiffer. It's actually a different frame than the previous generation, and it's a different frame than the standard F-150. It's a very stiff frame. The suspension travel is increased. The shocks are bigger. And 
all the body is aluminum now, and it shares the same cab with the Super Duty. So at my height, I really need the tall cab. Being able to get in out of that cab is so comfortable. I don't hit my head. I have enough room to stretch my leg out when I'm on an eight-hour drive somewhere. And in the back seat, when I put hunters and backpacks back there, I've got plenty of room for everybody. It's a five-and-a-half-foot bed, so there's enough room back there that I can haul what I need to haul. It's not my long bed super duty, but in tight places, the Raptor's fairly wide, but it's a lot more compact than my super duty. Um, we were able to take it in some crazy places. Um, I actually met one of your listeners on one of the roads that we went in on, and he was coming out in a, a four-seat Ranger, and he was pretty shocked to see a Raptor coming down that trail. Most people would never take a Raptor anywhere near this trail. But you know me, when I buy a tool, I use it. So we were in some nasty brush, getting Arizona pinstriping. But it's going places that most people would only take it side by side. I, I love mine for sure. Um, and it's a, it's a great truck. I'm glad you got one. Well, it's been, uh, been a while since I talked to you last, but that uh, sounds like we got we caught up pretty good. Sounds like you and Kelly had a great hunt and um, sounds like your buffalo hunts, they seem to always go well for you guys. Um, you take something that's very, very tough and make it look easy, um, even though I know it's not. Um, I'm excited for your, your you and your buddy on the strip hunt and um, want to encourage the listeners, if, if uh, they've got any hunts that... Uh, uh, Russ can handle for you. Make sure to give him a call. Contact him. Russ and his crew are phenomenal. Uh, Russ, I want to give you a chance to tell the listeners how they can reach you, and then um, if you had any final thoughts. Certainly. So they can always call me on my cell phone. That number is 928-814-9622. If I don't pick up, there's a really good chance I'm where I don't have cell signal, and you can always send me a text message. And I will do my best to get back to you just as quick as I can. If I don't get back to you, I didn't get your message. I always call every person back. So if I didn't get back to you, I did not get the message, please call again. In addition to my cell phone, you can always reach me on my email. And my email is coyote rustler. That's C-O-Y-O-T-E. R-U-S-T-L-E-R at gmail.com. We'd uh, love to help hunters that um, have tags for any of the big game animals in northern Arizona. So we do the buffalo, we do the deer, elk, antelope, bighorn sheep, and we'll take the units that a lot of other people shy away from. So we love to help in the sheep units that most of the outfitters don't want anything to do with. So we'll take... You know, unit 9, the 12s, the 13s, the 15s, 16s, any of those any of those units. We'll do the other units as well, but I get a lot of desperate calls from hunters that go, you know, I finally drew a tag. I probably shouldn't have drawn it here. Can you help me out? And we really enjoy those hunts. They're close to home, and we do really well in those units. We'd love to help you out. Um, final thoughts. Jay, just want to congratulate you on the podcast. Um, I'm constantly amazed at how far-reaching it has went. In our modern world of Facebook and YouTube, I still cannot wrap my head around how an audio file is so popular. I, I really can't get how people are just needing that visual interaction. Um, you know, it's probably good for them. They don't have to look at your face or mine, either one. Maybe that's why it's successful. But, you know, congratulations on the podcast. It's just off the charts. I do want to share one public safety thing that I think is important for the hunters. Um, we'll, we'll make it two things. I would encourage the hunters to get out there and try to make a difference for wildlife in Arizona. There's many different ways you can do that. Join one of the sportsmen's groups. Do a waterhole project. Do a fence project. Do something to give back to wildlife in Arizona. You know, we have several hundred thousand licensed hunters in Arizona. If even a small percentage of those hunters can get out there and give back, it's going to make a difference for all of us. You know, I'm old enough now that I have watched the number of antelope and deer 
in Arizona and their populations fluctuate over almost half a century. And as I've watched that happen, I wonder if we can't make a positive impact on that by choosing to give back to the resource a little bit. So go shoot a coyote. Go do a fence project. Go do a waterhole project. It will make a difference not only for your hunting opportunities, but for your hunting buddies and your children and our future generations. So please do that. This uh, predator change of trying to outlaw hunting of bobcats and outlines is horrible for Arizona. So talk to your neighbors, talk to your friends, get involved, try to make a positive difference in that. We cannot have this pass. It will be bad for the people and the wildlife of Arizona. So get out there and do some education. Be respectful in your education, but do the education. Help people understand why it's a bad idea. And the public service thing that I'm going to share has to do with uh, a new technology. When I say new, it's been up and coming for a few years. But Jay, I think you're using a Garmin inReach. Actually, I'm not, but I've heard lots of great things about them. So I'm going to put a plug in for the Garmin inReach. Um, that device gives you a handheld GPS that lets you send a text message, but it also gives you the ability to send a SOS signal. And in the past, I've always been a big proponent of uh, satellite phones. And we've had and used satellite phones for a number of years, and we've used them in emergency situations, and they're awesome. The inReach device is taking that technology. It's not a voice phone call, but it is a text message. And it's bringing that to the masses. You can get unlimited texting for around $50 a month. And the reason I'm putting a plug in there is not so much for that company or that that is for the safety of the people in the field. You know, your loved ones at home know where you're at. And if you have a problem, you can push that SOS button and you can get help to come help rescue you. But you also have that SO, the, the texting ability where you can check in um, with your friends and with your family so they're not worried about you. You decide to stay an extra day, you can text them that. Um, but we're using it in the field as an additional way to communicate between the guides and the hunters. And it's helped us find lost hunters. It's helped us um, be able to get on game animals that have been harvested more quickly and do a better job of caring for our meat. It's a new technology that's improving communication in the field in a way that I believe is going to save people's lives. If you're going to go dark and you're going to go deep, do it responsibly. Get one of these texting devices um, so that everyone could be safer out there. It's going to make a difference. I bet you in the next calendar year, an in-reach device is going to save somebody's life in Arizona. And that life saved could be yours. So check into the technology. It's pretty cool, and uh, it's relatively affordable. They have other plans for people that aren't doing it um, as much as we do. And there's some very affordable plans out there. And I, I think it will help increase the safety for your listeners. I think it's something really important to share with them. Russ, so explain a little bit. Um, I've also seen there's an app that you can actually be using your actual cell phone even if you don't have service, but if you're comfortable with the interface on your cell phone, is that true, or are you actually texting through the inReach device? So the answer is yes, you can do both. You do not have to have a smartphone. You can text with just the inReach device. Um, but it gets to be a little bit irritating when you're, it's like the old flip phone where you're pushing numbers to get to your, your letters. Yeah. It, there's when a you have like three, three letter prefixes and you have to hit them twice to get like A, B, C or whatever, you, you have to hit it twice to get B type of thing? It's not that bad. There's a keyboard and you scroll around with a toggle switch, but it's pretty primitive. If you're used to a smartphone, about the second text you'll send, you'll be like, this is stupid. Okay? Um, but it has the ability to load an app on your phone called EarthMate. You load this app on your phone, and it lets you use your, your Bluetooth between your cell phone and your inReach device. It lets you type a text on your cell phone. It Bluetooths it to your inReach, so you have a full keyboard with touchscreen that you're used to, and it's super fast. And then it sends it through the satellite to whomever you want to text. You can text any cell phone but you can also text any other in-reach device. 
So here's a good example. I can be on the Tyvab, and someone at my day job can have a question, and they can go, hey, Russ, do you know where the whatever tool is at? And I could text them back and go, yeah, it's in the third drawer on the left. And I've just interacted with something at work. Even though I'm gone, I'm still keeping the, the plate spinning at work. Um, five minutes later, a Buffalo can, Hunter can text me and say, hey, Russ, I just got a Buffalo down. Can you come help me? Instead of it being an hour or two before I normally make the rounds to check on them, I know about it immediately, and I can jump on that buffalo quicker than I used to be able to. Um, can you also send pictures, Russ? So, yes and no. Um, it does do texting, and I'm told you can send pictures. I haven't yet sent a picture out, um, but some of my guys have received pictures. We've had the devices now for a couple months, and I mainly use it for texting. Um, when I need to be sending out trophy pictures and that other stuff, it's enough for me that I just go get a, a signal to do that with. Um, but for general communications, it lets me Bluetooth my smartphone to my GPS. I can send a text message from anywhere to anywhere at any time. It's been super reliable, and I can go in reach to cell phone, or I can go in reach to in reach. So I can reach my fellow guys in the field, my fellow hunters in the field, my clients in the field, loved ones at home, and people at work back home. For me, it's been a game changer. Um, and I have that emergency SOS button. You know, if someone was to get hurt or have a heart attack, it gives me a way to quickly reach emergency services. When you have a catastrophic event, time is of the essence. In any way I can shorten that time down and provide a better service to our, to our clients, we want to take advantage of that. I have tested it in the field. I have yet to find a problem with it. It has been awesome, and I can't say enough nice things about it. Um, That's awesome. I'm going to have to check it out. I've heard a lot of great things about it for sure. There's two different devices. There's a yellow device, and there's one that's kind of a reddish-orange. Um, the street price for the fancier reddish-orange device is around 450 and it's 50 or or $100 less for the yellow device. The main difference in the two devices is a fancier device lets you have a, a, uh, a map on the GPS. So it works similar to a Rhino radio in that when I text Kelly and we're both elk hunting, I can choose to tell Kelly where I'm at, and he can choose to tell me where he's at. So I can keep track of my hunting buddy in the field, and we don't have to do it by talking. It shows up on my screen as a dot on the screen, and I know where Kelly's at. He moves to a new spot and texts me, hey, Russ, I moved. I know exactly where he's at. So that's been pretty nice. That sounds pretty awesome. And so when you're looking at it on a map, is it a topo map, or what, what kind of interface is it? It's a full topo map, and you're seeing it on your phone. Um, it's also on the screen of your GPS, but most users are kind of choose to use it with a smartphone. So in my case, I chuck the GPS in my backpack. It's Bluetooth to my cell phone. I carry my cell phone in one of my cargo pockets, and I turn the volume all the way down. It vibrates if I get a text. I pick the text up, and I looked at it, and I can let Laura know when we're intended to be back to camp for dinner. Um, I can pretty much text any facet of my life at any given time. But if I don't want to, I'm in the field and something's going on, I don't have time to deal with it. It's not like a radio interrupting my hunt. It's just in my pocket, and I'll get to it when I'm done. So, Just like on your cell phone, if you're doing something and you get regular text to your cell phone, you can, you can attend to it whenever you've got time. Absolutely. And the ability to choose whether or not you share your location is pretty awesome. So, you know, my hunting buddy, I want him to know where I'm at, but I may not want to let everybody on the planet know where my secret elk spot is. So you could turn that on and off. Sure. That sounds pretty cool. I'm going to have to check into it. I've been hearing a lot of great things about it. Uh, Russ, as always, it's been awesome having you on the podcast. Uh, you know, you mentioned the audio file, and one thing, and then I'll let you go, one thing I think that's so powerful about the audio aspect of the podcast is people can multitask. In other words, they can put their earphones in and be doing whatever they're doing, whereas 
you know, I feel like social media and YouTube and some of the other um, uh, outlets, they actually have to be watching a screen. And I actually thought that video podcasting would probably be bigger, but what I really think audio has really taken over um, because people like to be doing, you know, 16 things at one time. And I think that's where audio podcasts, you know, have, have some great value for sure. Well, it's certainly working, and I appreciate being included in the podcast. Appreciate our friendship. Um, I hope that the things that we share are able to help the other sportsmen in the field. We really want people to be safe out there and have a quality, fun experience. And where a company is doing something to make that possible, I'm the first one that's going to be step step up and say, hey, check this out. This is cool stuff, and, and really take advantage of it. I would extend any podcast listener out there, Jay, if they have a question on how that works and want us to go in more depth on it in the future, totally willing to do that or reach out to me. I mean, I can't take a thousand phone calls how to do it, but if there's something I can do to, to help a listener get home safely to their family, I certainly want to be able to help with that. Well, I always say you're the, uh, the tech guru and the inspector gadget. If there's anything that I ever have a question on, uh, usually whether it's, you know, what tires to run, what camera lens to get uh, rather than do a bunch of research I just call Russ or text Russ so I appreciate uh, all your help with that uh, Russ God bless you buddy um, oh did your um, did your daughter make it back uh, last we talked I think she was just coming back Kaylee's home safe and uh, Good. Re- reintegrated to uh, tell life at home um, she's back in college and she's going here locally right now she'll probably transfer someplace else I'm here relatively soon, but it's awesome having her back. She was able to, you know, help a lot of people when she was a missionary, and, you know, that portion of her life is is behind her now, and she's moving on to uh, a little bit more focus on herself. And, uh, you know, I kind of hesitate to say this out loud, but I guess I will. Uh, Laura and I will be celebrating our 25-year wedding anniversary very soon, and we're super excited about that. That's Um, awesome. But that also means that I'm old enough to have a daughter that uh, is probably going to be getting married before all that long. <laughs> You'll be and Grandpa Russ before you know it. <laughs> that just scares the heck out of me. Uh, so <laughs> there's a, there is a very precious young woman out here that's beautiful and an amazing huntress in her own right. Um, you know, if you're a, a perfect young man interested in that uh, Give me a call and maybe I'll let you date my daughter. But seriously, we're uh, we're hoping that Kaylee can find a, a good young man to, to start her own family with here over the next few years. And uh, I don't know how I'm going to handle that, but uh, that's, <laughs> kind of, that's what's on my horizon. <laughs> Lucky you. <laughs> All right, man. Well, uh, God bless and take care and um, keep, keep up the great work, okay? Absolutely, Jay. Thanks for having us. Uh, Be safe out there. Good luck on everyone's hunts, and we'll talk to you again in the future. All right, buddy. Take care. Bye.